once again, it's uh, really good to be here uh, to spend the Sunday with you. Um, let me pray before we uh, hear from God's Word. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you uh, so much that uh, we are able to be gathered to here together as your people, uh, that we may hear your word and we uh, pray um, that your spirit will be at work within us, um, that although uh, these words that I've written and will now speak will be um, nothing compared to the majesty and how deep and life-giving your words are. I just pray that you will take them and that they will do its work. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully you'll have an outline on the back of your handout. Um, unfortunately, it's changed a little bit. I think I gave the, gave it to, gave the outline to Philip two weeks ago and... Things kind of change in two weeks, but it's roughly the same. Um, we're going to be focusing on uh, verses 9 to 13, and our passage tells of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it shows how God is going to save the world through his Son, and what we need salvation from. It also uh, shows that from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus does what we cannot do. So from uh, verse 9, Jesus began his ministry by being baptised. Our understanding of baptism and also what has preceded these verses and what John was doing with baptism might call into question why Jesus was baptised to begin with. Why was Jesus baptised when baptism was about the cleansing of people from their sins? Well, Jesus' baptism shows what his ministry will be like and who he is. Firstly, Jesus' ministry will be one where justice is dealt with. So we see after Jesus is baptised, he saw the heavens being open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What a weird image. Well, the heavens being torn open is a reference to the Old Testament where God's presence descends and God deals with his enemies and sin is dealt. Justice is met when God tears open the sky. I think it's scary because I am definitely worthy of judgment because I have sinned. But there is something interesting that though this terrifying event happens, the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. If you have ever seen a dove, and I'm sure most of us have, you will have noticed that it is graceful and peaceful. Nobody sees a dove and is scared that they will be pecked or attacked. We might if the Spirit descended on Jesus like a, like a magpie or a goose. But no, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. This is important because a dove like now represented peace and gentleness. 
Though God will deal with sin, it will be marked by peace and gentleness. We also learn about Jesus' ministry through what God says. Jesus is God's beloved son. These words set Jesus apart in his ministry. He is different. He is like a coronation of the king. The king is set apart to rule over his people. We saw this just recently, didn't we? At the beginning of the coronation, the archbishop presented our king to his people. So here we see God setting apart our king Jesus with his role. And what is Jesus' role? We'll see it again in the words that God says. He says to Jesus, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the son in Psalm 2 and the suffering servant in in Isaiah 42. So Psalm 2 is about God's anointed king who will reign over all the earth. He will protect those who love God and crush God's enemies. So Jesus is this king who will reign over all the earth. But he's also the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, which says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This servant in whom God's soul delights will bring forth justice. And there is a need for justice against sin, isn't there? There is a need to deal with sin and for judgment to come upon it. And this chosen servant is going to do it. If we read further on in Isaiah 42, the suffering servant, as he brings forth justice, will do it while being gentle and peaceful. He will not bruise the reed or quench the smoking flax but will faithfully reveal justice to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' mission as the servant. But also in his mission, Jesus will suffer. In bringing forth justice in defeating sin, the beloved son suffers. Perhaps we know this because we know the story, but we also know this because in Isaiah, the chosen servant of God suffers and dies for the sins of of God's people. We read this in Isaiah 53, but we also see it in Jesus' baptism. Later on in Mark, Jesus refers to baptism in Mark 10. Two of his disciples, James and John, they ask Jesus whether, when Jesus returns in glory, that they, that they might be seated at his right and his left. Jesus replies with this question in verse 38. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised? I take it that Jesus isn't referring to just the cleansing of sin that we might think of in baptism, but to the judgment and suffering that happens on the cross. By Jesus being baptised, he shows to believers his path in saving his people. By Jesus bringing forth justice, he brings that judgement meant for us onto himself. 
So as God opens the heavens, he descends and deals with sin through Jesus, who will bring justice. Jesus is not just any man, but God's son, the divine king, who will deal once and for all with sin. And he deals with sin by suffering. Later on in Mark, we read also that the beloved son is tempted. Immediately, the spirit sends him into the wilderness. And Jesus has shown himself to be the beloved son who will bring about justice and who will do it by bringing all justice onto himself. Now, Jesus proves himself by going into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by the devil. From this, we learn that Jesus is the better Adam. If you flip back to Genesis 3, and that's a lot of flipping, but right at the beginning of the Bible, Adam is tempted in the garden and gives in to temptation. He bites into the fruit given to him, and as a result of sinning and rebelling against God, he dooms humanity to sin and death. And as a result of this, we are separated from God's goodness And we are separated from God. And now as we see God's plan for redemption finally coming to its completion, all the years of waiting, we're suddenly taken back to Genesis 3. But whereas Adam was tempted in the garden, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Jesus is is tempted in the dust and evils of the world. The wilderness where it's dry and hot, where there are thorny bushes and wild animals. Jesus is tempted where we see the result of Adam's sinful decision so present. Just as Satan tempts Adam in the garden, so he tempts the beloved son. But unlike Adam, Jesus resists temptation. We see this in verse 13, that while he was in the wilderness for 40 days, he is continually tempted by Satan but he resists the opportunity to sin. And this has always been God's plan. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it is promised that an offspring of Adam will crush the serpent, Satan. And Jesus is that head crusher. As Adam should have crushed the head of the serpent who sought to drag him away from God's love and presence, Jesus deals with the great enemy, Satan. He resists temptation. Jesus is so much better than Adam because what Adam chose not to do, Jesus does. You may be asking and thinking that if Jesus was really God, then Jesus' temptation must have been easier. Jesus didn't know what he was missing out on if he never sinned. But this is to misunderstand the alluring nature of sin. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, that you don't know the the force or weight of sin until you resist it. The longer you resist it, the more you know its temptation. This is why, he says, bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, 
is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. A criminal, for instance, may have done really bad things, but he only understands sin through their involvement and culpability. But in one sense, they don't know how it pushes and tempts, how it niggles and invites. For us, sin is often the relief that we find from temptation. It's the result of what festers inside. How ignorant we truly are to the fullness of temptation and the power of sin. Our general aim as a human race is not to glorify and love God, but to rebel against him and seek our own glory. It's not natural to seek God and resist sin. And also, so in a way, Jesus wasn't just tempted directly by Satan in the wilderness, but also throughout his time on earth. And he resisted, he bore temptation and stood against it. Jesus knows what it is like to be tempted. And he knows the power of sin. Not because he gave in, but because he resisted. So Jesus goes into the desert and is tempted. Like Adam, he is tempted to be drawn away from God. But unlike, unlike him, he does not. He is a beloved son who comes to tread on the serpent's head. Even as we ourselves seek to resist temptation and aim to love God above all else, we will always fail. So I love a certain chip called Pringles. You know, they're the ones in a can. I'm easily tempted by them. If I walk past them in in the shop at Woolies, sometimes the temptation is too much. The desire and love for them overtakes my will and I'm relieved in a way as I put them in my basket. And as soon as I buy them and get into the car, I usually have a couple. And as the slogan goes, once you pop, you can't stop. Well, temptation is like that, but usually about more serious things than chips. We're tempted by our own desires to rebel against God and put little idols to worship small things in our heart. We give in to temptation really easily. But our culture's understanding of temptation, although recognising that it exists, differs in how wide and deep it goes. Uh, George Herbert Shaw, he was a playwright, he said about temptation, I never resist temptation because I have found that things that are bad for me do not tempt me. Shaw determines that temptation is only for the things that are bad for him personally. Things like stealing, maybe, have never been a problem for him because he doesn't desire to steal. He views it as bad. Actually, in a way, he probably views it as uninteresting. We live in a culture that defines temptation as only what I determine as bad things or socially unacceptable things. But temptation goes much deeper than that. Sin actually goes much deeper than that. It goes much deeper than a can of chips or even our outward actions, like do not steal, but what flows from the heart. Our human nature is to place at the centre of our hearts, at the centre of our affections and our desires, 
anything but God, our creator. We place security and comfort in what we can do or get. Our job, a family maybe, money. We even place our desires in unhealthy affections like lust, pornography, love of money, anger. Longing for it is not ours, coveting. The allure of sin is so great on us that all of us give in. We all give in to temptation. We're all Adam. We all taste the fruit of sin instead of resisting and defeating sin. But there is good news. Because although we fail, there is someone who succeeds. Jesus does what we cannot. Jesus defeats sin. At his baptism, Jesus accepts that he will bring forth justice and be the beloved son. But how does he do it? Jesus brings forth justice by having judgment on himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, though he did not sin, took on our punishment for our sin in himself. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus takes our place. You have lived a sinful life, but Jesus has taken the punishment of that sin. You have also not lived a sinless life, but Jesus has made you righteous in himself, as though you have lived a sinless life. You have been declared righteous before God, being in right standing, not because of your works or lack of sin, but because Jesus does what you cannot do. Do we not see the hope of what Jesus has done and who he is? Without Jesus, we are lost. We are like Adam in our sin and death. But because of Jesus, because he resisted temptation and willingly died for us, He has brought life. Paul says this very thing in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam's death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive that abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Just as Adam's disobedience by taking the fruit brought death, Jesus' righteous life in his death brings life. Life that we can have in Jesus. Richard Sibbs Uh, was a Puritan who was often called the heavenly Dr. Sibs because his work was able to heal, comfort and encourage all those wounded by life. He wrote a fantastic little book called The Bruised Reed and the book was about Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 to 3 and how we can have assurance in our salvation and trust in Jesus. At the beginning of the book, Sibs writes, What a support to our faith is this. 
that God the Father, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. And what comfort is this, that seeing God's love's love rests on Christ as well pleased in him we may gather that he is well pleased with us if we be in Christ for his love rests in a whole Christ in Christ mystical as well as Christ natural because he loves him and us with one love let us therefore embrace Christ and in him God's love and build our faith safely on such a saviour that is furnished with so high a commission. I can think of no greater application of this passage than to embrace Christ and trust him. Though we are tempted by a lot of things in life, we can actually embrace the one who embraces us. We cannot live perfect lives And we cannot escape the penalty of sin by our own works. But we can through Christ who loves us. So much that he goes to the cross to die for our sins. We have a saviour who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever do. Jesus is our great king. The suffering servant and the serpent crusher who redeems his people. This gives us hope in our lives and it gives sure comfort of our salvation. Let me pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the beloved son um, who defeats sin, who does what we cannot do, so that in him we may be your children. We thank you so much for that. We pray that then, now, we will live our lives in this new identity and we'll trust in Christ in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.